Anger. Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' son, Achilles. Why is it that anger is the first word of the first great book of Western civilization, as well as of the St. John's College curriculum? Why did Homer choose to write an epic poem of some 15,000 lines about the anger of Achilles? Why should anger be an important theme, if not the central theme, of all of classical literature? How might reflection on anger form at least the starting point, if not also the core, of a liberal education? These are questions I hope to illuminate and perhaps to answer through a reading of the first book of the Iliad with some passages from later books. Let me first summarize the events depicted in book one of the Iliad. After invoking the muse and announcing his theme, the anger of Achilles, Homer tells the story of the quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon, a quarrel he says was set in motion by Apollo. Chryses, a priest of Apollo, comes to the swift ships of the Achaeans bearing an immense fortune to ransom back his daughter, evidently captured in a previous raid on a Trojan town and taken by Agamemnon as his personal prize. Despite the enthusiastic approval of the army, Agamemnon refuses to give up the girl, and the priest fleeing prays to Apollo for vengeance which comes in the form of a deadly plague afflicting the entire army. On the tenth day of the sickness, with no end in sight, Achilles calls an assembly where Calchas the seer reveals that the plague is Apollo's punishment for dishonoring his priest. Only the return of the girl, now for no ransom, together with a huge sacrifice, will propitiate the angry god. Agamemnon, infuriated, is willing to free her, but demands that some other girl be given to him in her place, lest he be the only Achaean left without a prize. Achilles is outraged by this demand and insists that there are no spare girls around to hand over to Agamemnon as a prize. After an exchange of bitter insults, Achilles threatens to withdraw from the fight and go home and Agamemnon announces that he will take Achilles' own prize, the beautiful Briseis, to compensate him for the loss of Chryseis, the daughter of the priest. Achilles, in his anger, is tempted to kill Agamemnon right then and there, but he is restrained by the goddess Athena. Instead, Achilles returns to his tent, Agamemnon sends his men there to seize Briseis, and the Achaeans bring Chryseis back to her father and make the required sacrifice. Apollo is appeased, the plague comes to an end, and the Achaeans, now without Achilles, are ready to resume the fight against Troy. Meanwhile, Achilles prays to his mother, the sea nymph Thetis, to persuade Zeus to give aid to the Trojans in the fight so that many Achaeans will be killed and Agamemnon will rue the day he dishonored Achilles the best of the Achaeans. The rest of Book One shows how Thetis journeyed to Olympus to supplicate Zeus, how Zeus considered and granted her son's request, and how Hera and Zeus quarreled with each other after the visit by Thetis. Now, perhaps it will seem obvious that the main reason Achilles gets angry 
is that after all, Agamemnon has just threatened to take away his girlfriend, his beloved Briseis, presumably intending to have his way with her in his tent. It is indeed right after Agamemnon utters this threat that Achilles feels a strong urge to draw his sword and kill Agamemnon on the spot. On the other hand, Achilles himself speaks very provokingly throughout the exchange and seems intent on escalating the quarrel with Agamemnon. That is especially evident when old Nestor intervenes with soothing words, encouraging Agamemnon not to take away Briseis and Achilles not to struggle against a sceptered king to whom Zeus has given glory. When Agamemnon appears ready to accept Nestor's sensible advice and back down, Achilles interrupts him and insists that Agamemnon can go ahead and take the girl, but he warns that he will kill him if he tries to take away anything else. So we are inclined to suspect that Achilles harbored grievances against Agamemnon well before the quarrel over Briseis. Reading a little more carefully, we can see other grounds for Achilles' anger that it seems were already present even before Agamemnon threatened to take away Briseis. Achilles complains that he and the other Achaean warriors have been fighting at Troy only to please Agamemnon and to win honor for him and his brother, not because of any quarrel of their own with the Trojans. Yet Agamemnon gives no care or consideration to Achilles' service and instead threatens to take away the prize the army awarded him for his great toil. Achilles calls Agamemnon the greediest of all men, who when sacking a city always takes for himself the biggest prize, leaving only a small prize to Achilles, even though it is Achilles who accomplishes most of the fighting with his own two hands. Achilles later calls Agamemnon heavy with wine with the eyes of a dog and the heart of a deer, saying, never have you dared in your spirit to put on armor with the troops for war, nor to go on an ambush with the best of the Achaeans. And while Achilles considers himself to be the best of the Achaeans, he says at the start of the quarrel that Agamemnon now boasts that he himself is, quote, by far the best of the Achaeans. What is at stake in this dispute about which warrior is the best of the Achaeans? No doubt that title would involve a variety of excellences, including strength and swiftness and skill. But it seems clear that the core of Achilles' claim to excellence lies in his arete, that is, his manly virtue, manifested above all as courage in the face of violent death. In Achilles' view, the Achaeans show their virtue, or lack of it, especially in ambushes, where a handful of troops sit in silence, eyeing each other tensely and awaiting the sudden onslaught of ferocious man-to-man -man combat. Much later, in Book 13 of the Iliad, the Cretan hero Idomeneus gives us a vivid account of how such ambushes show who is a coward and who is not. Quote, if now beside the ships all the best men were to assemble for an ambush where most of all the virtue of men is discerned, there the cowardly man and the courageous are shown forth clearly. For the skin of the coward changes color one way and another, and the spirit in his midriff cannot restrain him to sit untrembling. 
but he squats, shifting from ham to ham, and shifts from one foot to the other, and the heart inside his chest pounds greatly as he thinks about death, and a chattering of the teeth commences. But the good man's skin does not change color, nor is he overly frightened, once he has taken his place in the ambush of men, but he prays to be mixed as fast as possible in baneful war." End of quote. Among other things, this passage makes clear that for Idomeneus, the man who displays courage and steadfastness in the face of death is the good man simply, while the coward whose heart pounds and whose skin changes color and who squats and shifts nervously from one foot to the other is the bad man simply. For Achilles as well, it seems, the habitual absence of Agamemnon from such ambushes is a sure sign that he is not a man of virtue in the primary sense of the word. Perhaps then the underlying reason for Achilles' anger is the thought that he, a man of virtue and the best of the Achaeans, is under the authority of a king who has proved to be an inferior man, a greedy, selfish coward, who does not deserve to have heroes like Achilles risking their lives for him in battle day after day. On this reading, Achilles' anger is an expression of righteous indignation at the manifest injustice of his situation at Troy. It is not surprising then that Achilles is seething with resentment even before Apollo's plague strikes the army and the quarrel over Berseus is merely the occasion for that smoldering indignation to burst out into open flame. But even this more careful account of the anger of Achilles does not seem to me to go deep enough. One clue that there is more to be said about the source of the quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon can be found in the odd way Homer introduces us to that subject. He asks rhetorically, which one of the gods set these two together to fight in strife? And his answer is Apollo, who, in his anger at the king, sent an evil sickness throughout the army, and the troops were dying. And indeed, it is on the tenth day of that unrelenting and deadly plague that Achilles feels moved to make his first speech in the Iliad. It seems to me that Homer asks his rhetorical question, precisely in order to indicate to us that the origin of the quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon is not as obvious as it might seem, and that in fact the plague sent by Apollo might have a great deal to do with the anger of Achilles. Let me explain. When the priest Chryses first prayed to Apollo for vengeance, he addressed the god as Smintheus, that is, mouse god, in the Iliad, Apollo, the far shooter, seems to be a god responsible for disease rather than for health, perhaps in this instance for a plague borne by rodents. In Homer's description of the start of the plague, Apollo came like the night. First to die were the mules and the dogs, and then the men, and the funeral pyres of the dead were burning continuously. Achilles, calling the assembly on the tenth day of the plague, seems particularly horrified by the thought that he and the other Achaeans might die, not gloriously in battle, but ignominiously from this pestilence, carried into the camp by little mice, 
that kills anonymously and indiscriminately, striking dogs and mules as well as men. Achilles even suggests in his first speech that they should all go home if they can escape death, since war and plague together are now subduing the Achaeans. It is striking that Achilles is the one to raise the possibility of abandoning the war and returning home, for later in Book One, he tells his mother, you bore me to be short-lived, implying that he believed he was destined to die young. And Thetis appears to confirm this, saying, indeed, your allotted span is short, not very long at all, but as it is, you are quick to die and miserable beyond all men. It is only in Book 9 that we learn from Achilles himself that his mother had in fact offered him a choice. My mother, the goddess Thetis of the Silver Feet, tells me, I carry two sorts of doom towards the end of death. If I stay here and fight beside the city of the Trojans, my return home is lost, but my fame shall be everlasting. But if I go home to the dear land of my fathers, my excellent fame is lost, but there will be a long time for me, nor will the end of death reach me quickly. In light of this fuller account of Achilles' destiny, I think we have to read the Book One passages about his destiny to mean that to a man like Achilles, the choice between a long, dull life at home without fame and a brief but glorious life at Troy ending with death in battle seems no choice at all. That he felt all but compelled to take the path that will shortly cost him his life, but will win him imperishable glory. And far from making him the most miserable of mortals, Achilles might have thought that the choice of fates offered to him was a supremely noble one. After all, to be truly the best of the Achaeans and worthy of imperishable glory, perhaps the only form of immortality available to a human being, it would not suffice to be a great and effective warrior one would also have to show the supreme virtue of courage, above all by facing death unflinchingly. And what better way to show such courage than to accept the certainty of death at a young age as the price one is willing to pay for an imperishable and glorious name? Now a warrior of Achilles' rank might reasonably expect that his manly virtue and other excellences would, most of the time, if not all the time, make him victorious in battle, regularly defeating and even killing his foes, and not being defeated or killed by them. That is, he would expect his virtue to offer him considerable protection against defeat and death, rather than lead inevitably to his demise. Nonetheless, there would be something troubling about a kind of virtue so overwhelmingly superior that it simply guaranteed a warrior's safety and success in battle, so that the prospect of an ambush would be no more terrible and frightening to him than, say, the task of ridding his house of ants or cockroaches. There has to be a genuine risk of death if manly virtue is to truly deserve immortal glory. On the other hand, it would be absurd if this risk of death were so great that Achilles got himself killed and his life cut short in his very first battle at Troy. Perhaps then it would be more reasonable to say that what the best of the Achaeans expects of his manly virtue is that it will protect him from death for a time, but that if he should perish splendidly in battle, his virtue in life and in death 
will be remembered and admired forever. But now, ten days of unrelenting plague sent by the mouse god Apollo, with men and animals dying all around him, have perhaps shaken Achilles' confidence in the choice he made, reminding him forcefully that nothing is certain in life, that the gods may have their own plans to which we are not privy, and that it is not at all impossible that Achilles himself will end up one of the multitude of mules, dogs, and men randomly brought down by this dreadful and indiscriminate disease. That is, the plague raises for Achilles the suspicion that he might himself perish at Troy ignominiously and anonymously, rather than in a noble and distinguished display of manly arete. It might turn out that the gods in the end are indifferent to our fate, and even to our virtue, that they hold us in no higher regard than dogs and mules, and that it is of little concern to them whose body ends up piled on the burning heaps of disease-ravaged corpses. A warrior who died in that way, no more valiantly than a mule or a dog, would be a thing arousing horror and pity, surely not a fit subject for imperishable glory, even if the gods somehow contrived for that to be his destiny. It would therefore not be surprising if at this moment Achilles is beginning to wonder whether the short, violent life at Troy was so obviously superior to a long, dull life at home. Later, in Book 9 of the Iliad, during the embassy of Odysseus, Ajax, and Phoenix, we will see even more evidence of Achilles' ambivalence regarding the wisdom of his choice. It is here that Achilles expresses his most serious doubts as to whether the life of the warrior is worthwhile. An equal fate, he tells Odysseus, awaits the man who holds back and the one who fights hard. The bad man and the good man are both held in the same honor. A man who has done nothing dies just like one who has done much. And he declares that all the possessions that can be won by fighting are not worth risking one's life for. Yet, he cannot make up his mind whether to stay at Troy and return to the fighting or go home to Phthia. He first tells Odysseus that he and all his men will be sailing away from Troy the next morning, hoping to reach Phthia on the third day. He speaks of his plans to take a wife in marriage and enjoy with her the possessions won by his father. But he then tells Phoenix that he hasn't made up his mind and will decide tomorrow whether to go home or to remain at Troy. And finally, he tells Ajax to inform Agamemnon that he will return to the fighting, but only when Hector and the Trojans have come all the way to the ships and tents of the Myrmidons, slaughtering the Argives as they come. So, suppose that Achilles is having doubts about the wisdom of the choice he made to stay at Troy and fight. Doubts that uh, that were first raised by the plague sent by Apollo, or at any rate brought vividly to mind on that occasion. What has all this to do with Achilles' anger at, Am at Agamemnon? Let us look again at the quarrel in light of the suggestion that Achilles is just now calling into question whether the choice he has made to die young in battle in return for the promise of immortal fame is a sound and reasonable one. When the seer tells him that he must return Chryses to her father, a bitter Agamemnon complains that he had wanted to take her home with him, preferring her, in fact, to his own wife Clytemnestra, to whom she is not inferior in body and stature and wits and work. 
Agamemnon, it is clear, it is, is not one of those warriors who is planning to die gloriously in battle. Instead, he never loses sight of his eventual goal, to return to Argos and live out his life as a happy, rich, and celebrated king. Achilles responds by addressing him as most famous Atreides, most possession-loving of all men. He goes on to accuse Agamemnon of always taking the biggest prizes for himself, heaping up abundance and wealth while leaving the most dangerous fighting to others. As his anger burns hotly, Achilles even declares, somewhat implausibly as we noted above, that Agamemnon has never dared in his spirit to put on his armor with the troops for war or to go on an ambush with the best of the Achaeans. Perhaps in his anger, Achilles exaggerates these charges, as angry people are prone to do. But suppose it is true that Agamemnon fights as little as possible, prefers the lucrative raiding of villages to dangerous combat with the Trojans, takes care to avoid endangering his life, and carefully heaps up piles of treasure and beautiful women to take home with him to enjoy for the rest of his life. Why should that make Achilles angry? It would seem, after all, that all the warriors at Troy face a choice something like what Achilles was given. Even if the alternative destinies are not laid out for them as starkly as they were for him. That is, they can either conduct themselves primarily with a view to displaying utmost valor in combat, at great personal risk to life and limb, or they can make it their paramount aim to survive the war and flourish afterward, even at the cost of some diminished reputation. Or, more likely, they will pursue some muddled, middling course in between. But it ought not to surprise a proud hero like Achilles that few men would have the courage to make the choice he made, and it should even be a source of satisfaction to him and a confirmation that he is truly the best of the Achaeans, that most of his fellow warriors cannot face their deaths as fearlessly as he does. Why should it trouble Achilles that the short, brilliant life and the promise of eternal glory are a blessed destiny reserved for only the best of the Achaeans? One might even say that a man confident in his virtue and assured of the power of virtue to win him the only kind of destiny that can truly overcome death would feel pity rather than anger at those inferior men who are not able to face their death with the same courage and steadfastness. But what if Achilles has been wrong all along about the power of virtue to overcome, to overcome death? that is, to grant imperishable glory, a species of immortality in compensation for our death. Then Achilles' choice would be a mistake, and men like Agamemnon might turn out to be right. The coward, the bad man, who conducts himself in battle so as to maximize his chances of surviving and flourishing afterward, might turn out to be the good man after all or at least the man most likely to experience happiness in the all-too-brief span of a human life. Whereas the courageous man who risks and even sacrifices his life with no guarantee of comp compensation would turn out to be a deluded fool. Achilles, in his anger, calls Agamemnon clothed in shamelessness, thinking only of gain, a man who has the eyes of a dog and the heart of a deer. Now the heart of a deer is the heart of a cowardly man, one who would flinch in combat from fear of death, 
and whose lack of manly virtue would be manifest to his comrades as soon as he was compelled to take his place on an ambush with the best of the Achaeans. But what are the eyes of a dog? A dog is a slave to his desires, especially for food. And every dog owner is familiar with that shameless look in the eyes of a begging dog. A look that says, I am mastered by my overpowering desire, and I will do anything to satisfy that desire. According to Achilles, Agamemnon is not only a greedy coward who shrinks from death and cares only about gain, he even does those things publicly without any shame. But if Achilles is wrong about virtue and its power vis-a-vis -vis death, then it might turn out that human excellence, or at any rate the most serviceable way of comporting oneself in this world, does not require courage, but rather something like cowardice in the face of death and shamelessness in satisfying one's appetites. In short, the heart of a deer and the eyes of a dog. It is this thought I suggest, the fear that he might be utterly wrong about virtue, that those who care about virtue are deluding themselves, and that the best of the Achaeans might not be a man of virtue at all, but a shameless, selfish pursuer of material goods in the mold of Agamemnon that fills Achilles with rage. But why should this fear, the fear that virtue does not truly have the power to protect us from death, lead to anger? What is the power of anger in the soul of a man who is assailed by doubts about the power of virtue to protect him? Here too, Homer has much to teach us through the example of Achilles. What he shows us is first that anger is a supremely talkative passion. The angry man is full of arguments which he is eager to share with others, arguments that serve to justify his shaken convictions and restore his, his confidence in his own virtue and in the power of that virtue. In the case of Achilles, his anger seems to give him the hope, however fleeting, that by killing the miscreant Agamemnon, he can prove that virtue is after all effective that shameless cowards get the death they deserve, that good men are vindicated and bad men punished, thus restoring the moral order of the world that seemed to be threatened. Anger, more than any other passion, can at times make us feel godlike, confident that our will will be accomplished, and even perhaps that we are the embodiment of a divine nemesis inexorably ensuring that justice will be done. Consider Achilles' words to Athena when she comes down to stay his anger and stop him from stabbing Agamemnon to death. Why have you come this time, O child of Aegis-bearing Zeus? Or is it to see the hubris of Atreus' son, Agamemnon? But I will tell you this, and I think it shall be accomplished. By such acts of insolence, he may soon lose his life. These are imperious words that a god might address to a mortal, as Athena gently suggests when she says in answer, but I will tell you thus, and it also will be accomplished. Achilles gives in to Athena on this occasion, but it must have come as a shock and a disappointment to him that a god would come down to prevent him from administering to the vicious Agamemnon the, the death that he so richly deserved. First Apollo, and now Athena has given evidence of some indifference as to whether human beings get what they truly deserve. 
In this connection, let me also mention the figure of Clytemnestra in Aeschylus's Agamemnon, perhaps the greatest meditation on female anger in the literature of classical antiquity. After vengefully slaughtering her husband, Clytemnestra says to the chorus, do you claim this deed was mine? Do not suppose that I am the wife of Agamemnon. Rather, manifesting himself to this dead man's wife, the ancient bitter avenging spirit of Atreus, the cruel banqueter, has paid this one back, sacrificing a grown man for these young ones. In acting on her anger against Agamemnon, Clytemnestra feels herself to have been temporarily possessed by a spirit of divine vengeance. Anger, Homer shows us, is not so much a rational as a pseudo-rational passion. Angry words tend to be boastful and exaggerated. Consider, for example, Achilles' improbable accusation, quoted above, that Agamemnon has never once dared to put on his armor to fight alongside the troops. Even more revealing is his insistence that he is fighting at Troy only for the sake of the Atreidae, with no thought of benefit for himself when actually, as we have seen, he is fighting primarily in order to achieve immortal glory for himself. His anger lets him hide from himself the realization that a man of virtue is not devoting himself selflessly to the good of others, but is instead pursuing what he implicitly believes to be his own highest good. If his anger had not clouded his judgment on this point, Achilles might have begun to really come to grips with the problem of virtue. For how can the virtuous man to be said to deserve anything if the very sacrifices he makes, for example, the willingness of Achilles to die young, are actually made in pursuit of what he takes to be his own higher good, in Achilles' imperishable glory? Why would it make sense for the gods to reward such behavior if it was essentially selfish all along? Judging by Achilles' example, anger is not per se a dishonest passion. And the angry man thinks that he is telling the simple truth. But anger does allow us, and perhaps even requires us, to lie to ourselves. In Book 9, at the start of the embassy, Achilles declares to Odysseus, Hateful to me as the gates of Hades is that man who conceals one thing in his heart and says another. But at that very moment, Achilles is speaking to his old friends with apparent sympathy, while concealing in his heart the fact that he has arranged through his mother and Zeus for Hector and the Trojans to slaughter the Achaeans and set fire to their ships. Yet I am convinced at that moment Achilles does not think of himself as a deceitful man. His anger protects him from such self-awareness. Surprisingly, However painful are the experiences that give rise to anger, anger itself turns out to be a sweet pleasure, only masquerading as, a, as pain, as Achilles himself comes to realize after the death of Patroclus. In Book 18 of the Iliad, in a moment of rare clarity and introspection, Achilles comments, if only strife might vanish from among gods and human beings, and anger, which makes even a very thoughtful man harsh, and, much sweeter than honey that drips down, rises up like smoke in the hearts of men. In this powerful image, the honey signifies the sweet pleasure of our experience of anger. The smoke points up the way anger clouds our rational judgment. 
Of course, only four lines after offering this remarkably thoughtful insight, Achilles reverts to his old passion, vowing to hunt down and kill Hector in revenge for Patroclus. Had he been able to sustain that insight and to follow through on its implications, he might have come to see that his anger, rather than a simple and healthy reaction to the injustice and wickedness of others, was instead a self-indulgent and self-deceiving pleasure, and that by wallowing in anger and self-pity, he was preventing himself from facing up to his fears about manly virtue and death. Achilles is indeed a paradoxical figure. At once the angriest man in the Iliad, if not in all of Western literature, and at the same time capable on more than one occasion of the most thoughtful reflections about anger, mortality, and the contradictions of the heroic life. Somehow, no matter how clearly he sees that his anger is self-serving and destructive, no matter how penetrating are his insights into the incoherence of the life pursued by the best of the Achaeans, Achilles always finds himself seduced once again by the honey and smoke. As we have seen, Achilles several times raises the possibility of leaving Troy, abandoning, abandoning the life of the hero and the quest for immortal glory, and returning home to Thea to find a more modest but more attainable felicity in, to quote Moby Dick, the wife, the hearth, the bed, the table, the saddle, the fireside, the country. And yet, despite all his talk and all his doubts, Achilles never manages to summon the nerve to get up and leave. When Achilles first raised the possibility of leaving for Thea, Agamemnon had answered with contempt, flee then if your spirit urges you to. And perhaps Achilles could not stand the thought of Agamemnon and others speaking of him derisively as a coward after he and the Myrmidons had packed up and left. Maybe what kept him from acting on his convictions and leaving Troy was a lack of true courage, if there is such a thing. Courage so conceived would be a kind of toughness or strength of soul that would enable the truly courageous man to follow through on his critical insights and pursue what is genuinely good, no matter how painful he finds it to give up what is spuriously good. In any case, we learn from the story of Achilles that anger is perhaps the most unphilosophic of the passions and poses the gravest obstacle to genuine self-knowledge. It is in this sense that the Iliad shows us how the question of anger might form, if not the core, at any rate the starting point of a liberal education. Looking ahead to the discussion period, let me remind you of the main points of my interpretation. First, that the claim to be the best of the Achaeans is at its core a claim to possess manly virtue, arete, that is, courage in the face of death to the highest degree. Second, that the supremely virtuous man understands himself as deserving of ever everlasting glory and believes that his virtue has the power, if not, the protect, if not to protect him fully from death, at least to mitigate the sting of his mortality by rewarding him with such glory. Third, that the anger of Achilles has as its ultimate source the fear that virtue does not in fact have such a power to overcome death, and that the gods may in fact not care whether people get what they deserve. Fourth, that together with this fear, 
arises the painful thought that virtue itself might be not only impotent but incoherent, that human nobility might be an illusion, so that the only sensible way to go through life is to shamelessly pursue what we desire while avoiding death at all cost. It might turn out that the good man is the one with the eyes of a dog and the heart of a deer. And fourth and finally, sorry, fifth and finally, that as long as we are prone to anger, we will never be able to think through the problem of virtue as anger is the most unphilosophic of passions, a pleasure masquerading as a pain, posing in itself a serious impediment to self-knowledge. Thank you. <laughs>